Welcome to the New Ventures podcast. Our guest for today is Toby Hammond, the Managing Director of Future Pump. Future Pump provides solar irrigation pumps to one-acre farmers. There are about 500 million farmers with one-acre holdings across Asia and Africa, and Future Pump helps them maintain yields and decrease costs, even as climate changes uh, creates uncertainties in their livelihoods. Uh, Toby uh, founded Future Pump in 2013, he has been working in various sustainability projects since he graduated from Manchester University in 2000. But I guess his uh, interest in Africa started when in 2002, he cycled all the way from London to Johannesburg. And for the six years, he also ran a company which, which held nightclub events for recent graduates of various UK universities working in London, very aptly called the Nostalgia Club. Uh, you know, Toby, uh, very honestly, given these uh, 12 months, uh, the very word nightclub uh, makes me feel very nostalgic. Oh, yes. Thank you. Right. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Toby, for coming to our podcast. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Toby, let's start at the beginning. You know, you used the designs developed by Gert and Baum, a Dutch inventor who was working in Practicare Foundation. Uh, and that's probably the time, type of time I met your colleagues in Nairobi. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you developed a business out of a product. Yeah, it was um, it was a funny story, really. I, I had a chance a YouTube encounter, you could call it, with Gertian uh, Bomb, who's this uh, this Dutch inventor, amazing guy, and he'd uploaded a picture, a video of his pro prototype onto YouTube, which I was rather captivated by when I stumbled upon it. Um, so, to cut a long story short, we we got in touch. And, and realized that there was a certain um, complementarity to, 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 to his skills and, 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 and mine and, uh, and some of the other people that were in my team. Um, and we decided to take to market this, um, uh, th this prototype solar pump as it was then. Um, and uh, shortly after that, got in touch with um, an, an amazing Indian entrepreneur who, who, who helped us to set up the manufacturing. So I think there's been a, quite a few really lucky encounters and, and chances along the way um, that, that has made it possible to bring this product to market. Oh, great. Uh, as I say here in some parts of the world, you know, stars align when great people come together. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, you had a prototype and to make it a business, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about the testing, finding the early adopter customers, you know, the, the markets that would, uh, where you'd scale in the beginning, if you can tell us yeah, a little sure. bit about yeah, sure. Yes. Um, so I think, I mean, we, we started off around about 2013, but we spent the first three years really doing field testing. Um, and, and we did that in predominantly in Western Kenya and set up a, um, a kind of a field testing center in the end, um, where we could take our, our pump designs, our new pump prototypes, um, and get them used by real farmers. And and frequently get them broken by real farmers as well, because um, we were very keen <laughs> to make it very a very robust product and also a product that really met the needs of, of these one acre farmers that you mentioned earlier. Uh, and really the only way to do that is to get stuck in with those customers uh, and really understand that their needs and the problems that they have and what the product should like look like to to solve those and you know sitting in a in a workshop or a lab designing a product um you're not going to get that right the first time you've, you've got to get that sort of feedback loop 
uh, working from from taking your your products and testing them out with customers getting their feedback and then going back to the drawing board and and so we did an awful lot of that in the first three years and actually you know we, we thought at some point we'd be finished it seems now we're never going to be finished that it's a constantly iterating um sort of feedback loop where we're always we're always learning from our product um, from our customers and um they're very generous with their feedback and when we when we bring new products or new ideas to them as well and i think that is probably at the heart uh, of what we've managed to achieve so far great so you know and that's the story that uh, fascinates me and i want to understand a little bit about it you know a lot of us who work in these fields feel that you know these countries and regions differ so much from each other that in you know, a western kenya where you started itself differs from central kenya and it differs from you know other parts of africa but you have a product now which you started 3 years back which was field tested hammered and broken down by farmers in western kenya and today works in 17 countries right to, you know both east and west africa some parts of asia as well uh, you know how does a product like this scale across these very different geographies? Yeah, that's um, that, 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 that's a good question. I mean, I think what we what we managed to do, looking back, was come up with something that that solved the that was about right and solved the, the problem for um, a certain type of smallholder vegetable farmer um, that we originally found in in West Africa in West Kenya, and and there are similar-ish. Um, customers and farmers throughout Africa and to some extent Asia. Um, but there is no one-size-fits-all solution as well. Um, you know, within even a village, you've got you've got different types of farms, different crops, um, different attitudes to irrigation, for example. Um, so we can't serve everybody. Um, and indeed, you know, we are only scratching the surface so far. Um, and as, as you were suggesting there, we do see quite big differences across countries, across regions. So, for example, in, in, in West Africa, the irrigation practices are different. In Asia, the farms tend to be a bit larger um, and, and uh, the crops are different. And so that means different, different requirements. And, and as we've grown, we've, we've, we've brought, brought to market more product variants that address those different niches. Um, and again, that's an ongoing process as well. Great. So, you know, obviously bringing product variants helps you cater to different market segments, uh, but you're also driving down costs, uh, you know, quite dramatically, right? Uh, in 2018, when I met your colleagues in, in Nairobi, uh, the product was probably priced at $750. Uh, today, what I hear, it's priced at much less. If you have different variants, you know, how do you bring down costs? Um, yeah, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. <laughs> We're still trying to figure that out. And we, we are, we are obviously needing, looking to always drive down, um, the, the cost of our product because, I mean, it pretty much goes without saying that our customers being low income smallholder farmers have not got a lot of, a lot of money, um, a lot of disposable income. Um, and so the price point is, is all important. We've introduced a um, a kind of entry level product, which is which is a bit smaller than the product we were selling at, and that's how one way we've managed to to drive down the cost. 
Um, and then there are also, you know, opportunities um, for larger products where the farmer has has succeeded in growing their business and is actually looking to scale up their farm and their irrigated their irrigated land. Um, but I think one other thing we've learned is that it's not just about the build cost of the product. Actually, a far larger part of um, the cost that the farmer pays, the retail price, is the distribution price. Um, and and we are distributing to farmers in, in very remote locations, and we do that through a network of distribution partners in these you know, 17 or 20 countries where we're, um, we're, we're actually working now. Um, and you know, our distributors face a lot of challenges in, in importing those goods and, and getting them to the farmers um, and making those sales. Um, so we're also redoubling our focus on how we can better support those um, distributors and we'd like them to, to be selling more, more units at a lower margin rather than fewer, fewer units at a higher margin. Um, but um, that's also a work in progress there to, to try and drive down that end user cost. Uh, great. Uh, so it's not just about manufacturing, it's the total cost of ownership. It includes uh, you know, the cost of bringing the product to the farmer, which is, uh, um, you know, which is fascinating because I know that in Kenya, you have a, your partner is one of the largest uh, sort of pump companies there, Davis and Shirtliff, you know, mm. dates mm -hmm. back to Kenya's uh, pre-independence days. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but, I also, but I also know that um, in other parts of, of uh, Africa, your partners are much smaller organizations, right? Um, so, you know, how do they get to know about you? And, you know, how do you get to know about that? Well, um, we we come across them in all kinds of different ways. Actually, um, they they may have seen us at a at a trade show, um, um, which we which we go to you know, with a, a demonstration unit of our, of our product. Um, they may have found us online or or seen a farmer using it elsewhere and thought, well, that that, that would suit farms in my country. Um, we also do go looking for them as well, um, and trying to find the most suitable uh, partners for a given. Uh, a, a given country and and there's no sort of there, there are certain parameters that we want we want to see in a in, in a distributor but we do have quite a diverse bunch of distribution partners who some of whom are retailing pumps as you mentioned like our our, our, our partners Davison Shirtliff in in Kenya and others are a more solar orientated or solar finance companies even so in Uganda we work with a company called Solar Now, which is which is essentially a, a solar financing company, and they're able to introduce a payment plan um, offer to their customers, which spreads the cost of, of acquiring the pump over twelve or eighteen months. And obviously, that's that's a very attractive thing for many farmers. Great, and uh, you touched upon something that I'm very curious to know about because for in in uh, in the whole of Africa, and particularly in, the, in East Africa. Yeah, solar products have been sold on credit. So do you have to sell your product in credit? In which case are your partners, organizations like Solar Now, or uh, do you have banks as partners as well? We don't have to sell our product on credit, um, but probably around half of, of our sales have been put out on some form of payment plan or credit um, through, our, th through our partners. Um, we... Um, we even have some technology on on the pump, which enables a kind of remote monitoring system that that is used by by solar lighting systems, so-called Pago lighting uh, or, or Pago solar model. Um, but um, 
but actually there are times when I wonder, well, is actually that just a sticking plaster for the fact that the product is too expensive? And should, should, should we as a manufacturer really focus on trying to find a better product market fit by making the, making the product cheaper in the first place so that it is affordable on a, on a cash basis or at least a sort of friends and family uh, loans basis to, to farmers? Um, we do work, we have worked with banks and MFIs, um, and in some circumstances that can be very good, but in others it, it, it can simply add cost and complexity to an already, um, you know, an already fairly tricky uh, business model and distribution model. Right, and so then you go back to the, uh, to the first thing that you discussed, you know, get, uh, manufacturing the product and getting the product distributed at ever in, increased, ever decreasing costs, right? Uh, that's what we're trying to do, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, the, other, the other element of cost and use to, to, uh, to come to, for farmers is, of course, the, you know, the servicing issue, right? Um, the, the, you know, these, you know, there are many manifestations about this, but, you know, in, the, in much uh, large parts of Africa, you know, less densely populated areas, you know, just getting a service uh, person to a farmer's um, you know, places, you know, could be incredibly expensive, very difficult, mm -hmm. and of course, uh, you know, reduces the farmer's interest in the product. Obviously, you, you know, you're thinking very hard about it, and may, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, the, the after-sales service is, is all important, and unfortunately, there there's a great many well-meaning um, devices or farm technologies or other things which lie disused even pumps as well um, for want of a you know an, a 10 cent spare part that just isn't in the right place so Absolutely. we didn't really we really didn't want to repeat that um, that mistake but but this is a challenging problem um, the logistics of getting spare parts or service technicians to places that may be you know 50 kilometers off the nearest um, tarmac road um, in some cases so I think we think about this in a number of levels the first the first one is let's try really hard to design a product that's super robust and doesn't break in the first place um, and and our, our field testing has has helped us um, as I mentioned earlier sort of towards that goal and we offer a, a five-year warranty. I believe we're the only solar pump company that does that on our pump because we're so confident in its robustness and durability. Um, it's, it's quite happy being pumped dry or pumping sandy water and all that kind of thing, which, which not all pumps can cope with. I think the next level is, well, if, 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 if it does need servicing, and at some point it's going to, because it has moving parts, of course, and, and gets quite a lot of abuse on farms. And when it does need servicing, let's, let's empower the farmer um, to do that themselves. Um, let's make the design really, really simple and intuitive. Let's put the spare parts that they're likely to need and even the tools that they'll need to do that in the box, in every box. And so that's what we do. We have a spare parts and toolkit that goes in every box along with pictorial um, diagrams of, you know, how to change such and such a seal or something like that. And we have YouTube videos and other uh, tools for those that have got smartphone access to, to guide them through that. Um, if that doesn't work, then we're training our distributors in each country and we do in-person training and equip them with further spare parts 
Um, and if that doesn't work, we still backstop everything globally, even if we have to FedEx something from, from India, we will do that and make sure that we honor this five-year warranty and that we keep these pumps running so they can deliver the impact um, that we intend them to and that our farmers um, are investing in. Exactly. And I have heard it, uh, just wondering whether, if this is really true, that when you have employee and partner meets, you apparently have a competition where people would have to uh, disassemble and assemble a pump in for less than four minutes. Do people actually win that competition? That's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we have um, at our at, in normal times outside of pandemics, we have um, we have uh, distributor meetups that we call jamborees. And um, and one of the, the features of that is a is a is a sort of competitive tear tear down and rebuild of of the pump, which is timed um, in in different groups. And the the current the current world record is 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 just under four minutes for taking apart every every part uh, and then reassembling them. Um, a bit like um, sort of a Formula One pit stop with everyone there uh, with the tools. I mean that that is that is pretty impressive. Those guys. Uh, knew what they were doing to achieve that but um that hopefully illustrates that it, it is a very simple machine you know it's not full of electronics or very difficult things it's 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 deliberately uh, basic and that's what we think is is needed for this application fantastic and actually you know uh, this uh, the thing that you brought up about the jambori uh, just makes me ask the next question, which is about your culture. And uh, you know, you you, you know, you, uh, a UK entrepreneur uh, partnering with somebody, uh, a Dutch uh, inventor who was probably at that time in East Africa, met uh, meets an Indian entrepreneur. You know, how do you manage your organization culture? I mean, I mean, if, if the Netflix CEO wrote this book called No Rules, Rules, right? And if mm. you had to write a book, what do you write? Netflix uh, culture is, is 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 very impressive. I've seen some of that stuff. Yeah, um, I think we've we've not we don't have a you know a big rule a sort of PowerPoint about our or, or book about about our culture, but um, I, I think from the start it's always been based on uh, high levels of trust and giving people responsibility and expecting them to behave responsibly. It, I, I, my colleagues, I mean, um, and, and treating them, you know, like adults, really. Um, and and um, we've found that, you know, you, you can't have a kind of command and control style of management when you're working across multiple countries <clears throat> and time zones and cultures. You have to, you have to understand the different perspectives. Um, and you have to empower people to make their own decisions and trust them to do that. Uh, understand that you know nothing's ever going to be perfect um and um i think we're really lucky with future pumping that we've we've just got some fantastic people who've who've joined us who who share our mission um and we are a company uh, a for-profit company but we're all motivated by the social and environmental impacts of what we do um and and that means that everyone hopefully finds their their work meaningful or you know in some cases it perhaps doesn't even feel like work um because it's you know it's, it, it's things they they want to be doing um um I, I think one of the uh, one of the things that that really um started the whole ball rolling was when i i mentioned that youtube uh, encounter with the on with the uh, <clears throat> with the inventor gertian bomb you know he 
um, when I sent him an email saying, hey, I saw your, you know, your YouTube video, it looks really interesting, maybe I could help you to bring it to market. He, he emailed me by return back the blueprints and designs of his solar pump that he'd been working on for many years um, as an attachment without um, having even spoken to me at that point. <laughs> Yeah. And, and you know, no, yeah, no, no non-disclosure agreement, no sort of, you know, none of that stuff. He, he just wants to see it out there doing good. And he wants to see his, 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 his technologies making impact. And I just thought, well, isn't that fantastic? You know, I, this is the kind of person I want to do business with. And particularly I, I'd come out of an experience, which was the opposite, which was all, another startup with with lawyers and venture capital and you know a lot of tricky business and um all that kind of stuff and i it, i just found that so refreshing to find someone who you know who just wanted to crack on really and you know let's not worry too much about you know 200 page legal contracts and then non-disclosure agreements let's just get to work Exactly. And so I think the trust was born on that day. And how did you meet your Indian entrepreneur to set up the manufacturing uh, uh, space here? Um, yeah, what we did there was um, I posted a, a, an advert looking for um, a procurement agent or help with um, sourcing in, in India and China, actually, at the same time. I think I put it on a website. It may have been freelancer.com or one of those kind of um, websites where you can find people from with different skills. Um, and I had a bunch of replies from different people across across India and China. But the reply from um, uh, Jitubai, our, our co-founder, um, uh, what just stood out because he he was so passionate about the potential of, of, of what was being described and so careful to you know to, to set out all the options in a very sort of selfless and um again in a way a kind of a really human way and and, and not a kind of it doesn't come across so commercial it comes across as someone who really cares about their work and again it, it just it just jumped out as this is the person we need to um we need, to, we need to work with. So I was on a plane out to Mumbai a short while later and um, had a fantastic time meeting him and his wife, who, who is, is also his business partner. Um, and um, it really just started from there with initially a, a very small little workshop factory on the second floor of another building in Pune. And, um, and then we later moved to, um, to Rajkot in Gujarat, and, and then this year, this last year, we've moved into a new purpose-built factory there, um, all under his stewardship and leadership there, doing the whole, you know, the, our Future Pump India division, which is tasked with all the, the, the market, um, manufacturing um, and, 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 uh, and logistics. And, you know, this is a huge part uh, um, of the business that, um, that, that, uh, that they all manage um, and do so very well. Yeah, but this is fascinating. I mean, I, I just heard you say uh, the co-founder and, it, it, you know, so the co-founder of, of the company was somebody you, whom you had never met, different culture, uh, and you just sort of bumped into him and on freelancer.com. And, <laughs> and, but but it's, the, it's the vibes and the culture just, just transmitted across uh, the internet waves. Something well, like I, that, right? it was probably it had to be. It probably wasn't until we met in person, um, to be fair. But and you know, we didn't originally say, "Oh, we're looking for a co-founder." Um, it, it actually took us some some while before we realised. Well, actually, he is 
he is a co-founder, isn't he? Um, you know, he was there almost at the start and and has has realized, you know, one of the most important parts of the business, which is the, you know, the the production and to some extent the the, the design and production of, of our pumps. And so yeah, he's a he's a he's a co-founder. In fact, he's he's such a modest um man that he took some persuasion to take to take the 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 name the the, the title of co-founder originally. Um I think he may we may have agreed on co-founding director or something like that but um you know there you are yeah he's he's a, an, another another fantastic person that we're very lucky to have as part of um you know the foundations of the business exactly uh, the uh, i mean uh, people talk of often growing into one's role right and this is you know, what i'm hearing you describe it as people grew into a the role of co-founder actually you know starting from sort of almost helping each other yeah, yeah that's right and we're all I mean I think we're all growing all the time aren't we I mean if, if we're exactly. successful you know I, I didn't really know what I was doing when we were starting this I didn't understand the market I didn't understand the engineering um all the challenges um and and all of us as of individuals have 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 grown and, and and learned so much along this journey and you know we've we've ha we have other members of staff who joined us straight out of university um who are now absolutely crucial parts of the team as well because of the amount that they've 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 grown with the business um and uh that's a wonderful thing to to to, to see and to to be part of actually that that, that process. absolutely Absolutely. Are there things in your culture that, you know, or as a management process, you consciously don't do? I mean, things that, you know, in a large company or in a place like uh, with, with lawyers and 200 page NDAs where <laughs> people do, which you consciously stay away from. Huh? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I mentioned earlier on our style of management, certainly mine anyway, is, is not... Um, it is not sort of command and controlled so you know we don't we don't track uh, people's leave um we don't you know expect people to be always at their desk from 9am to 5pm for those that work at desks um you know we trust people that we, we understand that everyone has to balance um family commitments or particularly this last year you know everything else going on so um yeah, I, I think um, we we I, I like to think that 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 as I said earlier that, that those of those people that are that are working for Future Pump are, are are doing so because they find it fulfilling and and that we should we should treat them you know as 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 you might treat friends and family um, whether that whether that culture scales to a large company, I think that's why the the Netflix thing is so interesting. I mean, it's quite easy to be collegiate and chummy when there's only a handful of you, but if you if you become some, uh, uh, a company the size of, of of someone like Netflix, then I imagine uh, scaling that culture up and not losing it is a lot harder. I think I think the um, the people at Netflix said they had to sort of fight against investors who said well come on guys it's time to grow up now you're a big company you need all these policies and procedures and they said actually no we don't you know that's going to kill the soul of the of, of the business if, if if we put in all this red tape and all this hierarchy and they've managed to preserve it um and I, I, suddenly i'm talking more about netflix but anyway it, it it's um it's very interesting to see that 
it perhaps is possible to to preserve that that sort of startup um, culture um, as you grow as a company. Exactly. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your last crowdfunding uh, uh, project in which you have raised a million dollars. Uh, obviously, you know uh, what surprised me about that is that uh, uh, that you know investors are pouring in millions of dollars into the pay-as-you-go market, solar home system, uh, mini-grids in Africa, and, uh, and you also have your own pay-as-you-go product. Uh, you, uh, you, you, know, you are sort of uh, there in the UK, which is one of the hub, uh, hub, uh, hubs of investing in this area. At the same time, you know, what surprised me is when I read that you had many, many conversations with institutional investors, and it just many of them just ended abruptly. And then you started thinking about crowdfunding. You know, what is, uh, what is the discrepancy or what is the, how should I say, the point of disconnect between institutional investors and entrepreneurs? Well, I, I think I can only speak from my own experience and uh, I'll have to generalize a bit. There are obviously some, some great impact out investors out there who, who've supported our sort of off-grid solar sector hugely. Um, my own experience um, is a little coloured by the previous startup where I was burnt badly by some by some venture capital investors, and so I suppose we went into Future Pump at the start with a slightly different mindset, which is well, let's let's try and and get the fundamental building blocks of the business in place before we talk too seriously to um, you know to to equity investors. Um, and we were fortunate to get some fairly significant grant money because of the, the environmental impact, social impact that we deliver. We got some grant money from people like USAID um, to help us on our way. Um, and over the years, we've spoken and and done, you know, entered due diligence actually with 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 many of well, not many, quite a few of the of the of the big names um, of the kind of impact investing world who are interested in off grid solar. But um, it it could be it it could be that I'm you know I'm just not very good at raising money that way, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but 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 we've we, we've always found them to be very slow, um, to to require huge amounts of you know order to this and forecasts of that and models of that which which are not part of the you know the core day-to-day -day challenges of running the business it can be in, in other words a huge distraction from what you're trying to achieve raising money that way um and yeah in several cases we we were talking and actually did huge amounts of work um at the behest of, of these investors only to you know after six or even 12 months have an email from them saying sorry guys you know we've changed our investment criteria um or something um you're no longer a fit um so the crowdfunding thing is just really ap appealing to us because um it, it can be quite a fast way of, of of raising money um and again i think going back to our culture it's actually um a really good fit for uh, for, for, for future pump because you're you're getting a, a relatively small amount of money from a large number of people who uh, back your mission um, and who 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 like like what you're doing on some level um, hopefully so in our case we raised 
um, million dollars from about 1,200 people um, and people putting in as, as little as you know 15 dollars, 10 pounds sterling uh, to buy to buy a few shares in the company. Um, and those people are now almost an army of advocates for our mission. You know, they've, they've been making connections and introductions to us. You know, I know someone who might be interested in being your distributor in such and such a country and, and so on. So uh, I feel like actually the, the equity crowdfunding um, kind of revolution for startups, which is being in the UK led by the likes of Crowdcube, which is the, the platform where we raise money, I just think it's a really, really positive um, development for particularly meaningful startups that are doing something that is that is disruptive or in, you know socially, environmentally positive, um, because there is a huge appetite out there um, and a huge, huge amounts of money as well that that, that that's sitting around that people, uh, everyday people, um, are really delighted to to put behind a business that. That they believe in and isn't that a wonderful way of, of of raising money rather than you know striking backroom deals with with kind of money bandits and lawyers <laughs> which is often what it ends up being with uh, with the venture funds you know right uh, it's, it is wonderful but obviously there are lots of details around it it might be useful uh, to just get into a few of them what was the I mean, obviously, most entrepreneurs are like what you were doing, right? You know, writing proposals, discussing with investors and so on and so forth. But what was the sort of, uh, you know, one moment when you said, book, you know, let's do crowdfunding, you know, was there some success that you heard from some entrepreneurs? Was there a kind of, um, you know, what was the momentum behind the crowdfunding uh, decision? Um, well, it was the, it was the sort of start of the pandemic. I guess it was around this time last year, actually, uh, in the UK when the when the pandemic was um, was hitting, and a lot of funds were were kind of stopping stopping investing and things like that. Um, and we looked, we had looked at crowdfunding previously, um, and at that point, the sort of legalities of raising. Um, uh, selling shares that way were, were still a bit shaky, um, and we, I just realised that um, that that was this was now an increasingly established route. And I, I was amazed to see that there were some financial technology companies that had raised very large sums um, on on this Crowdcube platform. There's another beer company uh, called Brewdog here in the UK, which which had raised extraordinary sums from their from their beer drinking customers um, and um, yeah it, it just seemed like um, that it's time had come and that that it was a great fit for us so um, yeah I, I went for a walk with my uh, British co-founder Quentin um, it always seems my brain always seems to work better when walking than uh, than sitting down and, and and we just talked it through and decided that it, it's, um, it's a bit of shway you know walking it's it's a what sorry it's a british way british way is it all oh, right yeah. yeah yeah but um yeah we went for a, went for a walk socially socially distanced of course and yeah. um and um and we just thought that actually this this was the time was right to give this a whirl and um i soon found that a friend of mine from years back had had actually raised uh, unbeknownst to me raised some money on this platform already so he was helpful 
in, uh, in, in, in giving up some steers and tips. And um, yeah, we, we sort of began this process of, um, of preparing the pitch on, on, the, on the crowdfunding platform and you know, doing the video and things like that. And it's, it's quite a lot of work, um, but it felt much more like we were in the driving seat um, doing it that, that way than, than, than being, um, you know, always on the back foot and, and feeling less, less in control, I suppose, when talking to, you know, to large um, venture investors. Exactly. But, uh, you know, this, uh, the lot of work is, you know, it's, it's wonderful, obviously, to raise you know, reasonable amounts of money uh, from a large uh, uh, pool of investors. But, you know, there is a lot of work, right? You'll have to, the communication in particular becomes very, very critical. And one of the problems with, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, old crowdfunding was that companies would really have to do a, all the hard work of the communication themselves. Has that changed with platforms like the one you did? Yeah, um, I mean, we certainly had a whole load of, of, of very good and quite tricky questions posed during the pitch process when we were live by prospective investors, which was a lot of work to the to and fro that kind of that kind of communication. But but those who did go ahead and, and invest um, uh, are are all. Um, administrated through a nominee structure by 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 crowdcube by the by the platform and that basically means that there is one point of contact that represents all those 1200 investors so there is there's no sort of um agm kind of thing where where there's 1200 people who've got 10 pounds worth of shares <laughs> come along right um so so administratively um for us it's we haven't really done it yet because we only just raised it but um it, it seems like it's it's pretty reasonable um I, we still want to communicate with those investors because as i mentioned earlier these are there are some great people with some great um skills amongst them um but in terms of the of the requirements to communicate. I think it's, we've just committed to a quarterly um, update, you know, on how the business is going with some key numbers and um, which, which will be sent. And, you know, that's the sort of thing we do anyway. So, um, so that we have no problem with that at all. Great. So, so the, the, the interesting thing that I wanted to understand is that these 1,200 people, were they people who were earlier known to you, you know, some of your friends, customers, partners, or they were all, sort of already on the Crowdcube uh, yeah. database. Yeah, so we were really interested to find that out as well. Um, I, I think when I got into it, I thought, well, if you if you do the right pitch on Crowdcube, then there are all these people there that will just invest that you've never heard of. Um, and what we found was that by launching with the right momentum, and that did mean involving some um, some existing contacts that we had, um, then you, you you kind of get off to a good start, and then the the kind of anonymous crowd that you've never heard of before, then pick it up and carry it a lot further um, as the progress bar you know advances. Uh, and so so there is a there is a kind of a lot of upfront work in in sort of getting that momentum and going off with a bang, and, you know, perhaps doing some media work, um, lining up a few people who you know are interested to invest to you know to invest on day one. And, and things like that um but what we i mean we ended up with investors from over 60 countries uh, around the world including all the countries where we worked 
uh, where we work. Um, and those investors are include even some of our end user farmers. They include our distribution partners. They include people that work for NGOs that have heard about our work. Um, and um, we just think that is really democratizing and really inclusive to get all these diverse people with their stake in, in, in what we're doing. Um, and we were just so delighted to, to, to see the, these sums coming in from all over, all over the world, yeah. Right. So these end user farmers, I mean, this is obviously so fascinating. End user farm, farmers in, in, in Kenya or, or Tanzania, um, the NGO partners in these countries, obviously, they, I, I would assume, they did not know about CrowdCube, right? You got them to the platform. That's right. Yes. So, so we did that work in, in, in explaining what we were trying to do. And, and, and I'm not saying that you know, the bulk of our money came from, from one acre smallholder farmers in rural, rural Kenya. Um, but, but there are there are those who who like our product enough um, that they wanted to be a part of the journey and to have a piece of it really and um, I think it's kind of an emotional decision as much as a rational one isn't it something like of course. this you you feel that you know your heart feels that you want to be involved on some on, on some level with you know this company or this this opportunity um and then you know your head perhaps asks a few more more sensible questions about you know sales figures and turnover um yeah so so we, we brought some of those people to the table we had introduced them to the crowdcube platform and how that works and but then there, there was actually a huge uh, number of of people who are already on the crowdcube um kind of a database who, who who then saw our pitch and and joined in as well right so it seems like almost the way you're describing it that you know you build a initial momentum of let's say early adopters people who know you people who believe in the vision and that's that sort of you know swells into a larger crowd you know that's the way it probably played off in, yeah in I, case. yeah and i think going back to this sort of emotional decision making you know no one wants to invest in a in a proposition that is at one percent of its target on the progress bar you know you have these progress bars um you you want to you want to invest in something that already looks like a success um so you the idea is is to make sure it goes off with the bang that lots of people are investing on the first day um, and we got lucky with some media coverage which also helps there and then it, it sort of gathers pace and some momentum of its own um, and we actually you know we we, we hit our we, we had an, a, a funding target of three hundred thousand um, pounds which we hit in the first few days um, and then um, we actually closed early. We stopped it at a, at a £750,000, which is a million dollars, um, after about two weeks, um, because that was all we wanted to raise. Great. I mean, you don't have, and I, I like the way you're saying it, you don't have to raise large capital just because, you know, that's the way to go, but you raise the amount of capital that you need, and hopefully you go back to the same um, uh, people and ask them for uh, incremental money. And that goes on for a long time. Yeah, and there are businesses that have gone back three or four times as their business uh, as it's progressed, and you know you end up with some very loyal. If the business is going well, of course, you end up with some of very course. loyal, um, loyal investors who will you know double down and invest again or tell their friends and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's um, 
it's fantastic. I think it's I think it's a great model for raising capital personally. Right. And this is completely different from the way, let's say, you know, just going back to the pay as you go companies or, you know, for that matter, the conventional VC funded companies, which is you raise a 50 million in one shot. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and then and then uh, sort of try and grow rapidly um, to raise a 70 million. In your case, you are just doing it the other way around, you know. I think, yeah, and 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 I'm not saying crowdfunding is for everyone. I mean, they, they um, depending on the scale, there was obviously a point where you might want to raise a, a larger lump in one shot, as you are describing. Um, but I think that also reflects what kind of business you are. I mean, we we have grown relatively steadily. Um, we're trying to get fundamentals right. We're not making promises and projections that we can't keep. Um, the the sort of more Silicon Valley model of of fundraising is you know you raise a ton of money when you've only got a PowerPoint deck, uh, you hire a load of smart people, you run as fast as you can, um, and hope you don't run out of money, but and hope you capture a, capture a market and become worth a lot of money very quickly, um, and and that's the sort of higher higher octane way of doing it, which um, I think personally is is not very well suited to went to, to a business like ours that is is trying to solve some some pretty difficult problems with some pretty low income consumers in in places like africa you know it's it's not an obvious um you know dot com you know unicorn <laughs> sort of investment proposition it's uh you know it's it, it's something a bit more substantial and difficult perhaps right i, th I think the the, uh, the point really is that you know in a in a, in a traditional silicon valley type of investing scenario you'd raise a lot of money you'd burn it and but you'll as you said you'll try and grow to a point where, where you become a you you at least capture a certain market share but in your case perhaps the philosophy is to grow slowly you know just make sure that you are not burning money and you know prove the next point to the next point and so on and so forth yeah we we are still run we run a pretty lean operation um we are quite a small team um you know, we're about 35 globally, seven in the UK, the rest are mostly in India. Um, so, so yeah, we, we, we're, we're sort of um, doing things in our own way. And I mean, there are other companies in our sector who, who, who are following more of a, a sort of venture funding route and are raising quite spectacular amounts of money and hiring lots of smart people and burning their money faster. And I'm not saying that is the wrong way to do it. Um, it may it it may work may well work out well, um, but for us it wasn't the right way. Um, right, what we wanted to we, do. We will it, know in a few. We will know in a few years from now. Uh, <laughs> the, one, <laughs> the one thing that that uh, that uh, I wanted to ask is that you know the the hard sort of hard work that you did in the beginning. You know, one of the things that always stuns me is that the you know your communication. You know, right say right from uh, fourteen or fifteen. You know you. You know the blogs, for example, on your website. You know every month, regularly too. Uh, I've actually counted. Um, the, uh, uh, so, so you know, obviously there is a, there is a. It seems to me that in your sort of planning process, there is a strong accent in communication. Is that, uh, or am I am I just imagining too much? No, you're quite right, and and a lot of the credit for that goes to my colleague Helen, who you met the other day, I think, Sandroy. I mean, she. She has been with us for for quite a few years since since really quite almost the start, and she's always been very good at um, 
at, at writing those blogs at communicating um to our to our customers and to our distributors and uh, because of the globalized nature of our business and it, how how we work in different cultures different languages different time zones we have to kind of really dial up the communication um effort i think to to try and overcome um you know the the, the barriers that are there um, and uh, yeah i think i think that's i think that's served us well she she sometimes tells me you know you, you can't you can't over communicate you know you, <laughs> right. you, you don't don't be shy about posting this on, on 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 linkedin or something like that people you know people like to hear what we're doing um and and she's right you know we, we've 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 come a long way thanks to our our outreach um online Right, fantastic. And then, so what's the next goal? Well, uh, you know, with the seven hundred fifty thousand, a million dollars, what's the next goal? When, when do we get to meet each other again? Mm -hmm. Well, what we're doing with the um, with the funds raise is is um, a little bit of product development, but but mostly it's about investing in trying to lower the cost of distribution which I think we touched on earlier, um, that, that quite a lot of the final end user price goes in in, in the overhead of, of the distribution and, uh, and all that. Um, and we are, are looking to use uh, digital tools in particular to try and streamline how we, how we find leads, how we communicate with customers, um, and how we connect them up with distributors to, to, get, to get, the, get their hands on our on, on our products uh, and you know we, we've started that already um using using some pretty clever stuff um on, on digital marketing to to achieve that um in in these emerging markets right and uh, i'm sure it'll succeed uh, toby hammond thank you very much for being with us today real pleasure thank you thank you